0: Welcome back to Mathematically Speaking, I am your host, Adam Allred. Before we actually begin, I have a few thoughts. If you have made it this far and are still consistently listening to this show, then I thank you. I am very grateful that you have spent hours of your life listening to me ramble on such a niche and fairly inconsequential topic such as this. But starting this season and the next, I am going to trust you all much more. I will be doing less explaining of certain mathematical structures or subjects or theorems, and I will no longer avoid those that I know that are important, but I am not sure how to explain unless you have prior experience. I trust that you, my audience, are the kind of people that enjoy self-teaching, so I trust that if you do not understand something, you will look it up. If you are not able to look it up, then enjoy the pleasure of sitting with something that you cannot make sense of. It was the best advice I was given in an undergraduate, and is an invaluable skill. I will have a resource page on the website, and the link to that will be in the description of each episode, with names or links to books, articles, and websites used in each season or episode. I believe that short-form content without long-form supplements sort of miss the purpose of self-education. So without further ado, let's start season three. We have left Greece and traveled east, and this season we'll cover the mathematics of India, Islam, and China with the invention of algebra and number theory. Now I say this with some slight hesitation because the difference between number theory and algebra then versus today is night and day. The first car ever made and a Tesla are extraordinarily different, but they still have the same basic form that makes a car a car. We can see the foundations of these two powerful subjects beginning to form here that will get explored in later seasons with much greater detail. The lines between distinct subjects may blur for a while. But a main goal for this season is to highlight the powerful math that came from this region of the world that historically gets left behind. Now I hesitated when making this season a little bit. I am essentially cramming all the math ever done by an entire region of the world of two countries and a religion that nearly won out over Christianity into ten or so episodes. This is not to trivialize their work or to make light of anything that they have done. If making this show was my entire life and it paid my bills, I could do 20 episodes on India alone going super deep onto everything that they have ever done and mentioning every minor mathematician. But I do not have that kind of time and I don't think this is that kind of show. But I did decide to throw these three together because I think it better exemplifies the thesis of this show. That math is a tool to understand the world and is impacted by other parts of the culture that it comes out of. So the math that we will see here will not be done for math's sake. It will be done to further religion, to promote trade, and other things that come out of these wonderful cultures. Because when it comes down to it, math is a way of knowing the world. If your priority is politics and ethics, then math becomes a tool to help you do that better. If your priority is the pursuit of knowledge, for knowledge's sake, then math is just that. So when civilization began to grow in China around the Yellow River, the main philosophy that came up was not epistemology, or the way of knowing. They did not particularly want to understand the logical, quote-unquote, world around them, because they did not see a logical world. The Yellow River did not flood regularly like the Nile did. It happened randomly, so instead of trying to understand the world around them, they thought that maybe it would be best to understand how to be good to each other. Ethics ruled over epistemology. So when algebra gets invented in China, it is done to trade well with each other. And while the math will not be particularly wild or revolutionary in its own right, when put under a cultural lens, it is the most significant. And we begin in India, specifically the Vedic era, and it will be nearly impossible to remove mathematics from the religion and the language of the area, as they are all so neatly intertwined. We get the invention of the negative numbers, of zero, of algebra and number theory, of power series. Mathematics is used in praise and is given the poetic form that I will try to do justice, but English doesn't have the same ring to it that uh, Sanskrit or Hindi does. What makes all of these ideas so powerful, why am I going to reiterate how powerful they are across this season, is abstraction. By leaving the literal connection to the physical world and seeable world, then we get to describe the parts that we cannot see. The rules of math let us control what we do, not the rules of the physical world itself. We gain the power to model and manipulate the unseen. Negative numbers let us abstract the idea of debt and loss. Zero lets us talk about nothing with a capital N. Algebra and number theory give us tools to manipulate things that may only exist in our minds, and power series let, it, let us create polynomials to represent functions that tell us where amongst the stars a god lives. Now having left Greece, we have also left the geometric conception of number. Number has become abstracted from reality, almost like it was with Egypt and Mesopotamia, Our number didn't represent anything, but we had things to represent it. By the Vedic period, we see that the decimal system, the same system that we use today, has expanded beyond that of the Greeks substantially. We know this because of a set of weights representing ratios of 0.05, 0.1, 0.2, 0.5, 1, 2, 5, 10, 20, 50, 100, 200, 500, The cities built at the time were done with such precision and uniformity that it seems like there was an existence of building code. This cannot be if there's not a number system that can support such precision. Before we can talk about any of the actual people, we must understand the richness that is the Indian mathematical tradition. To show what I mean by they praise number, let me quote some Vedic scripture. Hail to one, hail to two, hail to three, hail to eight. Hail to eighteen, hail to nineteen, hail to twenty nine, hail to thirty nine, hail to ninety nine, hail to one hundred, hail to two hundred, hail to all, hail to a hundred, hail to a thousand, hail to Ayuta, which is ten thousand, hail to Nayuta, which is one hundred thousand, hail to Prayuta, which is a million, hail to ten million, hundred million. A billion, ten billion, hundred billion, trillion, hail to the dawn, hail to the daybreak, hail to the world, hail to all. I paraphrased in there and I saw if I butchered this, the the language there. The highest the Greeks ever got to was a million with Diophantus. And here we see an easy understanding of ten to the twelfth, or trillion. This release from a geometric sense of number and the freedom of abstraction lets algebra grow here. It isn't really known why there is a need to develop such large numbers, or the understanding of it. There would have been no practical need for numbers this large for the everyday person, but there is a fascination with numbers that incredibly large. It is like when we think of space or watch the videos that zoom out from a city and end with the observable universe. There is some significance in realizing how small we are. The word Paduma stood for 10 to the 29th. Buddha gives the number... 108,470,495,616,000, to an answer in a 4th century text. In a separate religious text, the number 2 to the 96th, or 7.92 times 10 to the 28th, is given as the total number of human beings since the beginning of creation. There was a religious reverence toward mathematics that can be seen in a creation story. The god Prajapti, or the year, created everything but feared death, so he took 720 bricks that represented the 360 days and 360 nights in a perfect year, and he begins to divide them into different stacks that would represent the number of months in a year and the number of days in those months. He skips the pairing that results in a decimal when dividing and lands on 24 stacks of 30 bricks per stack. This this then explains 24 half-months in a year, and the 15 waxes of the moon and the 15 wanes of the moon. There are the combinations of Prajapti skips because it would result in a remainder upon dividing, and we are dealing with an ideal year. Whole days only, whole numbers. There should be no extra days in some months. Another example of, cru- of a crucial part of their religion was their ability to put shapes under transformations to change them into different shapes. And this was done on the uh, the altars themselves that they would worship on. For example, let's see how they would create a square whose area is the combination of two smaller squares. Again, a quote from a Vedic texts: "The combination of two equal quadrilaterals stated, the combination of two quadrilaterals with individual measures cut off a part of the larger with the side of the smaller. The cord equal to the diagonal of the part makes an area which combines both. Similarly, removing a square quadril- quadrilateral from a square quadrilateral cut off a part of the larger as much as the side of the, of the one to be removed. Bring the long side of the larger part diagonally against the longer side. Cut off that other side where it falls, with the cut off side is made a square equal to the difference. But they had so much more than just large numbers and geometric understanding. The Vedic mathematics had its own transformation, a Vedic transformation. You take a number and add the digits until there is only one digit left. Take the multiplication tables from 1 to 9, for example. Then, after you do the multiplication, you add the digits until one digit remains. So nine times nine, instead of equaling 81, it equals nine, since eight plus one is nine. In fact, any number times nine is nine in the Vedic transformation. So what is this purpose? What is, it? Well, why would you, why would you uh, simplify multiplication if, uh, to think of it like that? Because much of the Vedic mathematical tradition was passed down orally. Math had to be made in such a way that it would be easily remembered. To make sure of this, the numbers had to be easily manipulated and had to take up as little brain space as possible. If multi-digit numbers were transformed to single-digit ones, then calculations became much, much simpler. If you remember on the last episode of Season 1, we spoke of the Hindu-Arabic cal- uh, calculator that was just base 10, placeholder, counting system, and some paper. We see again this was used because it could be done all mentally. Of course, it could be written down, but it does not have to be. This Vedic math, recorded in sutras, provided the calculation tricks to do math that were natural once an understanding of the numbers were understood. You had to know the basic rules before you could play with them. Here's an example, something you can do on your phone calculator. Let's convert kilograms to pounds. Double your kilos and divide by 10. Add that to the number. Add that number to step one that's it. How about converting Fahrenheit to Celsius? It's just as easy. Subtract 30, divide by 2. Converting kilograms to miles? Take kilometers, divide by 8, multiply by 5. And these rules were given rhyming sayings that I could only find in Sanskrit, so I'm not sure what exactly they were. But these steps were easy enough that you could make a tune and then commit them to memory, because math wasn't supposed to be written down. The next significant invention of this Vedic era of math was the number zero. And the importance of it will come back later. The rules that appear, the arithmetic and the algebraic rules provide a necessary building blocks for the algebra that we know today. If the fascination with the magnificently large is there, it has to be mirrored with incredibly small, or even the absence of number. We get the basics of the infinitely large and the infinitely small. Zero is why we have this. Functionally, it only acts as a placeholder. It says we have no tens, no ones, no hundreds, no billions, etc. But it also lets us recognize nothing as a thing in and of itself. If your religion has the idea of infinite time, like the Hindu, Hindu tradition has, without start or end, time on the infinitely te- infinitesimal and on the infinitely large scale, then it requires also zero. You must consider, what if none of this was here at all? Nothing must exist alongside not nothing. So if there's infinitely large and infinitely small and 0, then there must be infinite size that exists between the finite. That's the only way you have a continuum of time. Let's see how they approximated the square root of 2, for example, that exists between the numbers 0 and 1 or between 1 and 2. If you remember, the Greeks got hung up on this number and broke down the Pythagorean's uh, image of the universe to the point that someone was killed, maybe. But they had no problem with this. In fact, they used it in a formula to find the length of the diagonal of a square of length s. Take the side length s, multiply by the the following sum. 1 plus a third plus 1 over 3 times 4, minus 1 over 3 times 4, times 34. In the Vedic text it reads, one should increase the measure by a third part, and by a fourth part, decreased by its 34th part. That is its diagonal. There is so much more that could be said about this culture that it will influence the math of India, but for now I will leave it here. I'll let you ponder on these things. On the next episode, we get to see our first mathematician, Arie Bata. Thank you for listening.